Chapter Seventy, Part One of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Six, Chapter Seventy: Final Settlement of the Ecclesiastical State, Part One. Character and coronation of Petrarch, restoration of the freedom and government of Rome by the Tribune Rienzi, his virtues and vices, his expulsion and death, return of the popes from Avignon, great schism of the West, reunion of the Latin Church, last struggles of Roman liberty, statutes of Rome, final settlement of the ecclesiastical state. In the apprehension of modern times, Petrarch is the Italian songster of Laura and love. In the harmony of his Tuscan rhymes, Italy applauds, or rather adores, the father of her lyric poetry, and his verse, or at least his name, is repeated by the enthusiasm or affectation of amorous sensibility. Whatever may be the private taste of a stranger, his slight and superficial knowledge should humbly acquiesce in the judgment of a learned nation, Yet I may hope or presume that the Italians do not compare the tedious uniformity of sonnets and elegies with the sublime compositions of their epic muse, the original wildness of Dante, the regular beauties of Tasso, and the boundless variety of the incomparable Ariosto. The merits of the lover I am still less qualified to appreciate, nor am I deeply interested in a metaphysical passion for a nymph so shadowy that her existence has been questioned, for a matron so prolific that she was delivered of eleven legitimate children, while her amorous swain sighed and sung at the fountain of Vaucluse. But, in the eyes of Petrarch, and those of his graver contemporaries, his love was a sin, and Italian verse a frivolous amusement. His Latin works, of philosophy, poetry, and eloquence, established his serious reputation, which was soon diffused from Avignon over France and Italy. His friends and disciples were multiplied in every city, and if the ponderous volume of his writings be now abandoned to a long repose, our gratitude must applaud the man who, by precept and example, revived the spirit and study of the Augustan age. From his earliest youth, Petrarch aspired to the poetic crown. The academical honours of the three faculties had introduced a royal degree of master or doctor in the art of poetry, and the title of poet laureate, which custom rather than vanity perpetuates in the English court, was first invented by the Caesars of Germany. In the musical games of antiquity, a prize was bestowed on the victor, the belief that Virgil and Horace had been crowned in the capital inflamed the emulation of a Latin bard, and the laurel was endeared to the lover by a verbal resemblance with the name of his mistress. The value of either object was enhanced by the difficulties of the pursuit, and if the virtue or prudence of Laura was inexorable, he enjoyed, and might boast of enjoying, the nymph of poetry. His vanity was not of the most delicate kind, since he applauds the success of his own labours. His name was popular, his friends were active, the open or secret opposition of envy and prejudice was surmounted by the dexterity of patient merit. 
In the thirty-sixth year of his age he was solicited to accept the object of his wishes, and on the same day, in the solitude of Vaucluse, he received a similar and solemn invitation from the Senate of Rome and the University of Paris. The learning of a theological school and the ignorance of a lawless city were alike unqualified to bestow the ideal though immortal wreath which genius may obtain from the free applause of the public and of posterity. But the candidate dismissed this troublesome reflection, and after some moments of complacency and suspense, preferred the summons of the metropolis of the world. The ceremony of his coronation was performed in the capital, by his friend and patron the supreme magistrate of the Republic. Twelve patrician youths were arrayed in scarlet, six representatives of the most illustrious families in green robes with garlands of flowers accompanied the procession. In the midst of the princes and nobles, the senator, Count of Anguillara, a kinsman of the Colonna, assumed his throne, and at the voice of a herald, Petrarch arose. After discoursing on a text of Virgil, and thrice repeating his vows for the prosperity of Rome, he knelt before the throne, and received from the senator a laurel crown, with a more precious declaration, This is the reward of merit. The people shouted, Long life to the capital and the poet! A sonnet in praise of Rome was accepted as the effusion of genius and gratitude, and after the whole procession had visited the Vatican, the profane wreath was suspended before the shrine of St. Peter. In the act or diploma which was presented to Petrarch, the title and prerogatives of Poet Laureate are revived in the capital, after the lapse of thirteen hundred years, and he receives the perpetual privilege of wearing, at his choice, a crown of laurel, ivy, or myrtle, of assuming the poetic habit, and of teaching, disputing, interpreting, and composing in all places whatsoever, and on all subjects of literature. The grant was ratified by the authority of the Senate and people, and the character of citizen was the recompense of his affection for the Roman name. They did him honour, but they did him justice. In the familiar society of Cicero and Livy, he had imbibed the ideas of an ancient patriot, and his ardent fancy kindled every idea to a sentiment, and every sentiment to a passion. The aspect of the seven hills and their majestic ruins confirmed these lively impressions, and he loved a country by whose liberal spirit he had been crowned and adopted. The poverty and debasement of Rome excited the indignation and pity of her grateful son. He dissembled the faults of his fellow-citizens, applauded with partial fondness the last of their heroes and matrons, and, in the remembrance of the past, in the hopes of the future, was pleased to forget the miseries of the present time. Rome was still the lawful mistress of the world. The Pope and the Emperor, the Bishop and General, had abdicated their station by an inglorious retreat to the Rhone and the Danube, but if she could resume her virtue, the Republic might again vindicate her liberty and dominion. Amidst the indulgence of enthusiasm and eloquence, Petrarch, Italy, and Europe were astonished by a revolution which realised for a moment his most splendid visions. The rise and fall of the tribune Rienzi will occupy the following pages. The subject is interesting, the materials are rich, and the glance of a patriot bard will sometimes vivify the copious but simple narrative 
of the Florentine, and more especially of the Roman, historian. In a quarter of the city which was inhabited only by mechanics and Jews, the marriage of an innkeeper and a washerwoman produced the future deliverer of Rome. From such parents, Nicolas Rienzi Gabrini could inherit neither dignity nor fortune, and the gift of a liberal education which they painfully bestowed was the cause of his glory and untimely end. The study of history and eloquence, the writings of Cicero, Seneca, Livy, Caesar, and Valerius Maximus, elevated above his equals and contemporaries the genius of the young plebeian. He perused with indefatigable diligence the manuscripts and marbles of antiquity, loved to dispense his knowledge in familiar language, and was often provoked to exclaim, Where are now these Romans? Their virtue, their justice, their power! Why was I not born in these happy times? When the Republic addressed to the throne of Avignon an embassy of the three orders, the spirit and eloquence of Rienzi recommended him to a place among the thirteen deputies of the Commons. The orator had the honour of haranguing Pope Clement the Sixth and the satisfaction of conversing with Petrarch, a congenial mind. But his aspiring hopes were chilled by disgrace and poverty, and the patriot was reduced to a single garment and the charity of the hospital. From this misery he was relieved by the sense of merit or the smile of favour, and the employment of apostolic notary afforded him a daily stipend of five gold florins, a more honourable and extensive connection, and the right of contrasting both in words and actions his own integrity with the vices of the state. The eloquence of Rienzi was prompt and persuasive. The multitude is always prone to envy and censure. He was stimulated by the loss of a brother and the impunity of the assassins, nor was it possible to excuse or exaggerate the public calamities. The blessings of peace and justice, for which civil society has been instituted, were banished from Rome. The jealous citizens who might have endured every personal or pecuniary injury were most deeply wounded in the dishonour of their wives and daughters. They were equally oppressed by the arrogance of the nobles and the corruption of the magistrates, and the abuse of arms or of laws was the only circumstance that distinguished the lions from the dogs and serpents of the capital. These allegorical emblems were variously repeated in the pictures which Rienzi exhibited in the streets and churches, and while the spectators gazed with curious wonder, the bold and ready orator unfolded the meaning, applied the satire, inflamed their passions, and announced a distant hope of comfort and deliverance. The privileges of Rome, her eternal sovereignty over her princes and provinces, was the theme of his public and private discourse, and a monument of servitude became in his hands a title and incentive of liberty. The decree of the Senate, which granted the most ample prerogatives to the Emperor Vespasian, had been inscribed on a copper plate still extant in the choir of the Church of St. John Lateran. A numerous assembly of nobles and plebeians was invited to this political lecture, and a convenient theatre was erected for their reception. The notary appeared in a magnificent and mysterious habit, explained the inscription by aversion and commentary, and descanted with eloquence and zeal on the ancient glories of the Senate and people, from whom all legal authority was derived. 
the supine ignorance of the nobles was incapable of discerning the serious tendency of such representations, they might sometimes chastise with words and blows the plebeian reformer, but he was often suffered in the Colonna Palace to amuse the company with his threats and predictions, and the modern Brutus was concealed under the mask of folly and the character of a buffoon. While they indulged their contempt, the restoration of the good estate, his favourite expression, was entertained among the people as a desirable, a possible, and at length as an approaching event, and while all had the disposition to applaud, some had the courage to assist their promised deliverer. A prophecy, or rather a summons, affixed on the church door of St. George, was the first public evidence of his designs. A nocturnal assembly of a hundred citizens on Mount Aventine, the first step to their execution. After an oath of secrecy and aid, he represented to the conspirators the importance and facility of their enterprise, that the nobles, without union or resources, were strong only in the fear of their imaginary strength, that all power as well as right was in the hands of the people, that the revenues of the apostolical chamber might relieve the public distress, and that the Pope himself would approve their victory over the common enemies of government and freedom. After securing a faithful band to protect his first declaration, he proclaimed through the city, by sound of trumpet, that on the evening of the following day all persons should assemble without arms before the church of St. Angelo, to provide for the re-establishment of the good estate. The whole night was employed in the celebration of thirty masses of the Holy Ghost, and in the morning Rienzi, bareheaded but in complete armour, issued from the church, encompassed by the hundred conspirators. The Pope's vicar, the simple Bishop of Orvieto, who had been persuaded to sustain a part in this singular ceremony, marched on his right hand, and three great standards were borne aloft as the emblems of their design. In the first, the banner of liberty, Rome was seated on two lions, with a palm in one hand and a globe in the other. St. Paul, with a drawn sword, was delineated in the banner of justice, and in the third, St. Peter held the keys of concord and peace. Rienzi was encouraged by the presence and applause of an innumerable crowd, who understood little and hoped much, and the procession slowly rolled forwards from the castle of St. Angelo to the capital. His triumph was disturbed by some secret emotions which he laboured to suppress. He ascended without opposition, and with seeming confidence, the citadel of the Republic, harangued the people from the balcony, and received the most flattering confirmation of his acts and laws. The nobles, as if destitute of arms and councils, beheld in silent consternation this strange revolution, and the moment had been prudently chosen when the most formidable, Stephen Colonna, was absent from the city. On the first rumour he returned to his palace, affected to despise this plebeian tumult, and declared to the messenger of Rienzi that at his leisure he would cast the madman from the windows of the capital. The great bell instantly rang an alarm, and so rapid was the tide, so urgent was the danger, that Colonna escaped with precipitation to the suburb of St. Lawrence. From thence, after a moment's refreshment, he continued the same speedy career, till he reached in safety his castle of Palestrina, lamenting his own imprudence, 
which had not trampled the spark of this mighty conflagration. A general and peremptory order was issued from the capital to all the nobles that they should peaceably retire to their estates. They obeyed, and their departure secured the tranquillity of the free and obedient citizens of Rome. But such voluntary obedience evaporates with the first transports of zeal, and Rienzi felt the importance of justifying his usurpation by a regular form and a legal title. At his own choice the Roman people would have displayed their attachment and authority by lavishing on his head the names of senator or consul, of king or emperor. He preferred the ancient and modest appellation of tribune. The protection of the commons was the essence of that sacred office, and they were ignorant that it had never been invested with any share in the legislative or executive powers of the Republic. In this character, and with the consent of the Roman, the tribune enacted the most salutary laws for the restoration and maintenance of the good estate. By the first he fulfils the wish of honesty and inexperience that no civil suit should be protracted beyond the term of fifteen days. The danger of frequent perjury might justify the pronouncing against a false accuser the same penalty which his evidence would have inflicted. The disorders of the times might compel the legislator to punish every homicide with death, and every injury with equal retaliation. But the execution of justice was hopeless till he had previously abolished the tyranny of the nobles. It was formally provided that none, except the supreme magistrate, should possess or command the gates, bridges, or towers of the state, that no private garrison should be introduced into the towns or castles of the Roman territory, that none should bear arms or presume to fortify their houses in the city or country, that the barons should be responsible for the safety of the highways and the free passage of provisions, and that the protection of malefactors and robbers should be expiated by a fine of a thousand marks of silver. But these regulations would have been impotent and nugatory had not the licentious nobles been awed by the sword of the civil power. A sudden alarm from the bell of the capital could still summon to the standard above twenty thousand volunteers. The support of the tribune and the laws required a more regular and permanent force. In each harbour of the coast a vessel was stationed for the assurance of commerce. A standing militia of three hundred and sixty horse and thirteen hundred foot was levied, clothed and paid in the thirteen quarters of the city, and the spirit of a commonwealth may be traced in the grateful allowance of one hundred florins, or pounds, to the heirs of every soldier who lost his life in the service of his country. For the maintenance of the public defence, for the establishment of granaries, for the relief of widows, orphans, and indigent convents, Rienzi applied, without fear of sacrilege, the revenues of the apostolic chamber. The three branches of hearth-money, the salt-duty and the customs, were each of the annual produce of one hundred thousand florins, and scandalous were the abuses, if in four or five months the amount of the salt-duty could be trebled by his judicious economy. After thus restoring the forces and finances of the Republic, the Tribune recalled the nobles from their solitary independence, required their personal appearance in the capital, and imposed an oath of allegiance to the new government, and of submission to the laws of the good estate. Apprehensive of their safety, but still more apprehensive of the danger of a refusal, 
the princes and barons returned to their houses at Rome in the garb of simple and peaceful citizens. The Colonna and Orsini, the Savelli and Frangipani, were confounded before the tribunal of a plebeian, of the vile buffoon whom they had so often derided, and their disgrace was aggravated by the indignation which they vainly struggled to disguise. The same oath was successively pronounced by the several orders of society, the clergy and gentlemen, the judges and notaries, the merchants and artisans, and the gradual descent was marked by the increase of sincerity and zeal. They swore to live and die with the Republic and the Church, whose interest was artfully united by the nominal association of the Bishop of Orvieto, the Pope's vicar, to the office of tribune. It was the boast of Rienzi that he had delivered the throne and patrimony of St. Peter from a rebellious aristocracy, and Clement VI, who rejoiced in its fall, affected to believe the professions, to applaud the merits, and to confirm the title of his trusty servant. The speech, perhaps the mind, of the tribune was inspired with a lively regard for the purity of the faith. He insinuated his claim to a supernatural mission from the Holy Ghost, enforced by a heavy forfeiture the annual duty of confession and communion, and strictly guarded the spiritual as well as the temporal welfare of his faithful people. End of chapter 70, part 1